XX Equals is a focused, user-centered innovation collective within Canadi Ford, and this is our podcast. Our aim is to close the gap between perception and reality when designing for women. So jump in and join us as we talk to some of the leaders, experts, and trailblazers in this space. Hello and welcome to XX Equals podcast. I have the pleasure today of being joined by Joseph Chafai. Joseph is Head of Product Development at Verso Biosense, um, a really fascinating business that we've had the privilege to do some some work with and and also partner with moving forward. Um, Joseph, would you mind please sharing a little bit about yourself and your experience and Verso Biosense with our listeners today? Yeah, thanks, Mel. Um, so I'm I'm a I'm a technology geek, um, and uh, being a technology geek in Swansea, which is where I did my degree, and and then in Cardiff my PhD, there, there wasn't at the time a lot of opportunity to kind of express my geekiness. Um, so I, I I essentially started up my own companies, um, you know, to, to 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 pursue that interest in in technology and. Um, after a while, kind of settled very firmly in the diabetes space. Um, I set up two companies. Um, one was Salnovo, which which got listed on on uh, the Paris Stock Exchange, and then later um, Viva Vicentra, sorry, which is uh, based in in the Netherlands. Uh, both of them uh, developing insulin patch pumps for managing uh, insulin delivery to to people with type one type 1 diabetes. Um, having done that, I, I kind of uh, got a little bit bored of, of kind of chasing money and, and writing business plans and, and kind of setting stuff up from new. So I started looking around for my next opportunity. And, and that's where um, I ended up coming across, uh, at the time, it was called Vivaplex. Uh, we've re- recently re- rebranded, and, and we're now called Versa Biosense. Um, and when I first went and met then then CEO Joe Smart, uh, she showed me this device, which was essentially um, uh, an intrauterine contraceptive device that the company had modified, uh, adding electronics and sensor systems, um, and a way of powering that device up and also communicating with it wirelessly. Um, that was able that could be implanted in into the uterus and could monitor some key parameters within that uterine space continuously for seven days. And instantly it just seemed a really interesting project. So, so that's usually where I start as an individual, is this interesting for me? But then as, as you get to know about, you know, you know, what's behind that technology and the reasons for that, you know, it became clear that it was serving quite an unmet need within the fertility space. And essentially that even today, if you talk to most key opinion leaders, the uterus and the uterine environment is still considered as a black box. And that came as a huge, huge surprise to me. So, you know, ever since then, um, you know, we've got to the point where we have developed a prototype. Um, we're literally a few weeks away from starting our clinical uh, study. We were just given the green light just last week. So we're looking forward to being the first to ever get into the uterus and to monitor continuously these these three parameters that we have we have targeted. Sounds incredible, right? But that is the state of uterine knowledge at the moment. It's fascinating. I mean, the product itself is incredible. And as you say, very groundbreaking. But also, I think 
this this sort of observation if you will around actually this this black box concept i think that's a great way of describing it and the way that it affects so many different products whether they're related to infertility or whether they're related to you know a broader sense of women's health or you know post childbirth etc and you're right there is such little knowledge around actually the inner workings of you know a woman's fertility and how that you know how that can actually influence positive outcomes as well yeah you're right i mean you know just to take an example one of the measure, one of the parameters that we're monitoring is dissolved oxygen now you know it's been long known um you know from the very early days of ivf that if you culture an embryo at anywhere near atmospheric oxygen the embryo doesn't do very well it doesn't develop very well um and and you get a lot of failures uh, so, so most embryos today are cultured at about 5% oxygen, which is well below atmospheric. Um, and that's based on studies that have been done in, in non-human models, right, uh, mice, etc. So it's always been known that there is a unique environment within, within the uterus, specifically with regards to dissolved oxygen. It was only in um, 2019 that actually it was also discovered that if you reduce that oxygen tension even lower for the last two days of a five-day incubation cycle, there is a, an improvement again on top of what they saw at the 5% level. So this is 2019, right? And we're still, and, and dissolved oxygen is a fundamental parameter. I mean, we've known about oxygen, you know, we've known about, um, you know, uh, embryo culture, but it's only 2019 that we've had this step change in our understanding of dissolved oxygen. And we as a company look at that and think, you know, we're on the right track. There must be a lot more that can be discovered, not by doing uh, experiments and monitoring in non-human models, but actually looking at humans themselves and, you know, what are the conditions in a human uterus? And, and the one benefit that we have with our device is that being very similar to into a uterine contraceptive device, you know, it's well tolerated you know, it, it, it doesn't require surgery. So it's something that we can do without really affecting the subject on which we are we are um, kind of implanting this device and, and, and doing the monitoring. And Joseph, tell me, what has the reaction been to to this development and, and you know, this innovation within the industry? It, that's an interesting question. So, you know, the reality is that until you show that there is a definitive link between some of the parameters that we're measuring and a clinical outcome, um, the industry as a whole tends to want to sit on the sidelines and, and watch. And you know, that's not unusual. I think most startups probably uh, experience that phase in their development at, at some point or other, especially if they're, they're kind of groundbreaking companies like, um, like us. Um, we experience exactly the same challenges when we were developing our insulin patch pumps, despite the fact there was already a product on the market and it was clearly generating a huge amount of kind of user pull. You know, the, the, in the, the industry as a whole was extremely sceptical of that, of that product format. I mean, today it's probably 50-50 whether you have a patch pump or a conventional insulin pump. So it's not, it's not unusual to see the industry kind of sit back and wait. They, they have the ability to do that. It, you know, it's up to companies like ours, startups, to take that early risk and demonstrate that actually 
this product is going to be um, a viable way forward in, in a number of, of disease areas, in our case, initially within, within fertility. And I think the issue around the lack of clinical data around women as a whole within that sort of broader space of fertility is a challenge because often you see as a result of clinical trials that there are um, products or, you know, or, or outcomes that are unexpected or additional, you know, benefits that are, are found throughout, you know, trials and, and sort of and that general R&D process where a combination of sort of the lack of clinical trials with um, women's health, the lack of investment, uh, as you say, this kind of sit back and see attitude of of the, the broader, um, you know, sort of larger players or, or um, you know, view towards innovation, all of that culminates into a, a, a create a scenario where ultimately women are being disadvantaged. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I would have to agree with you. You know, that certainly the, um, you know, the picture that we've developed of, of women's health is exactly that, that, you know, it, it's, it almost feels as if um, nobody quite knows how to tackle it. You know, that I agree with you that, you know, when, when clinical trials are um, constructed, there is no specific driver to say, look, 50% of our potential population are going to be women, regardless, regardless of what that product is, right? And then secondly, that some specific disease areas that are um, specific to women's health, they seem to be completely ignored. I mean, you know, we, we mentioned the, the classic ones, you know, fertility, endometriosis, menopause. If you pick those three things, I mean, they're huge. I've been married for for, for a long time, and I know, apart from endometriosis and potentially infertility, that, you know, it's a serious problem. And yet, when, when, when my wife was doing searches to see how you can alleviate the condition, the, the, the symptoms of menopause, for example, try and understand better why it is that, you know, she was still feeling menopause was quite late in, in her life. There were no real answers out there. It, and it just seems that a lot of this stuff has remained hidden and, and underserved for a long, long time. Um, so, yeah, we, we hope that some of the things that we can bring to this are, are definitely going to be beneficial that you know we can at least get in there and monitor some things that might be of use absolutely and i think also what has in his you know historically been this disadvantage is lending itself to creation of an opportunity because there's a lot more conversation around it um, there's a lot more understanding and i think not just in terms of startups but from some of the bigger the bigger businesses as well that this is a fundamental business opportunity this isn't a niche here it's 50 percent of the population you say in relation to menopause 13 million women in the uk alone are peri or menopausal and yet they have been largely ignored and you have these challenge around around these female specific conditions but also um, conditions which manifest physiologically differently in men to women and how those symptoms play out except you know ex- for example as well i mean heart disease has has been talked about a lot in in that sense recently and yet you know we're still not seeing the levels of investment um, and understanding of what that looks like across male and female yeah you're right i mean certainly certainly in terms of you know the the level of interest that uh, this whole field is now generating in terms of investment in terms of um kind of uh, adoption by by big companies you you can definitely see that i mean you, you only have to 
have a cursory look at the kind of acquisitions that are going on, you know, the 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 way that some businesses are restructuring to to create um, kind of women's health operations that are to some extent separate from their from their main. You can see that definitely happening. I mean, for us, that's that's really exciting because, you know, one of the things that is definitely going to help us is is the availability of funding, and the availability of funding tends to ride on the back of a, a kind of a broader uplift in interest across the board. No investor it w w wants to be interested in a company that they don't think they're going to be able to sell at the end of the day. It, it's a fact of life. So, so that's, that, that is very, very true. And what, what have been, it's interesting as well, Joseph, coming from that world of diabetes into um, you know, women's health, what has been sort of the biggest surprise to you? I started off thinking, wow, you know, the reason why we don't have a lot of products in this space is because, you know, medical device industry is, I mean, it, it is male dominated. There's no, there's no two ways about it. And I thought maybe it's that, but, you know, the problem seems to be deeper than that, you know, to the point I made earlier that, you know, how is it that in 2021, we're still, not we, key opinion leaders, are still talking about the uterus as being a black box. It, it's, it's just incredible, you know, and, and that, you know, people, uh, women presenting to their GP surgery with, with endometriosis are still being told, oh, well, you know, it's just stomach cramps, um, you know, and, and remaining un, undiagnosed for, for almost over a decade on average. There's something fundamentally wrong going on. And, and I, 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 don't know, I don't know why, I don't know why. I, I suspect even you know, the perception of pain might be considered to be something that you know women do not tolerate well, and so therefore you know they almost come across to, to some people as as kind of whinging about something that, uh, uh, that's actually nothing. I think there is an element of that. Um, I, I had a I had cause to be talking to somebody just this weekend um, who who had pneumonia. She's a woman. Um, actually went to her GP, who was also a woman, and she dismissed it as just being, oh, it's, you know, you, you, you're imagining it. And um, I don't, I don't know if if the same reaction would have been for a man who was presenting with with migraines. I, I don't know. I suspect it would have been. I think you know, this whole industry needs to change the way they perceive women's health. And and I think, you know, the more women get involved in that industry, you know, at, at all levels, you know, the better it is. We, you know, we we actively recruit women into our team because we need that insight, you know, because I think as, as men, we run the risk of missing the point. But I think what's important as well is that you're asking those questions, Joseph. And I think I think you're right, you know, I mean, that's why we created XX Equals and, and you know, we work together in that context because it's important to have that empathetic approach. It's important to be able to challenge assumptions, etc. But I think if you are, as a business, which I believe your business is, self-aware and asking the right questions and and understanding that broader context, then I think you know, half the battle is won. But equally, you've got the other end of the spectrum. And I know we've seen this a lot in terms of, you know, personal stories that, that you've heard, that I've heard, and, and broader things that we read in in the news and, and sort of an opinion around how how women are frequently dismissed. And there isn't that lack of understanding 
or training that's happening in GPs or, um, or you know, the, the actual resources available. The number of women, um, you know, menopause is a really interesting area. The number of women I've spoken to who have been prescribed antidepressants when they've gone to their GP with menopausal symptoms. You think, you know, you're a woman in your late 40s. Surely there are some standard questions that, that should be being asked. You know, it's not rocket science here. But yet frequently we see again and again and again and we hear these stories. And there hasn't been, I know the government are now address or starting to address this with a women's health strategy. But equally, I think the issue and the challenges and and um, and the, the problems are so broad, you know, a single health strategy uh, isn't going to even begin to respond to all of the different areas that need addressing. Do, do you know, the, 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 the one thing that I think I suspect is also true here is that women already know what some of these answers are. Uh, I'm just again, I, my, my wife is a great source of of, of information and, and, and kind of guidance on this. She used to work um, in an environment that was almost 100% female. And, you know, sometimes she would come home and, and recount some of the conversations that they've been having. having and, you know, invariably, it'd be almost about two subjects. One is having babies. Who's, who's struggling? Who isn't? You know, what are they going through mentally, physically when when they're struggling? You know, if, if you if you have managed to conceive, you know, how how do you need to kind of approach your 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 female partner? Because you know, some of them might and, and the other one was was menopause. <laughs> so I, I suspect that actually the answers are already there. We're just not asking the right people. Right. And uh, you know, some of the some of the new startups that we're seeing as a company emerging it, it's interesting that some of them appear to be retracing old ground but doing it because they're doing it in a in a different way a woman-centric way they are coming up with much more innovative ways of, of handling these these issues not necessarily high tech that's the other thing right it's it, not many of these are actually really high tech but they've just approached it in a different way and therefore come to a solution that's probably a little bit better tailored to the audience to which it's been is being delivered. I think that's a really important point, actually, because equally, you know, you have this access of the functional and the technology. But if you're not applying that in the right way or, or actually, you know, in, as you say, in many instances, it's not even a case of having to rely on that. But it's such an emotional space, you know, women's health, whether that's, you know, a desire for a baby or or actually the stories that we hear a lot in menopause around how, you know, women's self-worth drops away and and because of those changes that the body is going through and often that lack of understanding, you know, the, the, the anxiety increases, the confidence decreases. All of those areas are hugely emotional. And if they're not actually being recognised as that as well, then ultimately those solutions aren't going to feel right or feel that they're you know the right things to be engaging with no correct i mean I, you know just uh, something I, I i was going to talk about earlier but i, I completely forgot my th train of thought but it's come back to me now it seems ironic to me that we've had in in the us an orphan drug classification so these are drugs for niche groups with kind of uh, niche diseases and they get 
preferential treatment in terms of their passage through the FDA process. I find that extremely interesting how we have recognized that these groups need special help and yet we've ignored 50% of our population to date. Right, it, uh, you know, how, how does that how does that happen? How is it that, you know, we have the capacity to to understand these niche groups and yet when 50% of our population appears to be having some issues, we don't seem to be aware of it. And, you know, going back to that that space of, of infertility, I know versus biosense is, is much more than that, but but that that sort of primary um, opportunity space, if you will, for um, for the IUD, um, it, it is it, it is becoming an increasingly saturated market, the market of infertility. But what you're offering, what your business is offering, is unlike anything else in that space. It's incredibly disruptive. How do you think the other startups and and the the more sort of defined traditional paths, if you will, are going to kind of react to something so different coming to the market? <laughs> um, <laughs> I hope badly, because <laughs> I think the more disruptive you are, <laughs> the more unpopular you make yourself. Um, I mean, you know, when we look at the kind of um, the innovation that's happening within within IVF, a lot of it seems to be in lab automation, and it's it's purely aimed at driving costs down. And it just seems to me that when you have a process that is at best, you know, 30, 25 to 30% efficient. What you should be, really be doing is, is improving the efficiency, right? Not lowering the cost for, you know, the 30% the, the that, that might be successful. So, so you know, in, in, that, in that respect, we are, we are disruptive. We hope to be disruptive. I mean, and here's one very clear place where we think we can be disruptive. And I go back to the um, to, the, to the, um, the the bit of information I gave about the two the five percent to two percent shift in in uh, incubators. That you know, if you set your incubator at five percent for three days and then you reduce it to two percent for the last two days, how is that reflective of the environment in which that embryo is going to be implanted? I mean, do we really believe that that five percent and two percent actually describes even a large percent of the female population is going for fertility treatment. So one of the really kind of exciting areas for us is personalization of fertility treatment. And where we would like to start is say, well, look, you know, maybe some of the problems you have in terms of recurrent implantation failure is that you are taking an embryo that's been cultured in what is perhaps a very cosseted environment and you're now actually going to put it into quite a challenging environment and, and maybe allowing it to acclimatize before you do the implantation, right? Might be the, the thing that, that, that moves the needle on this. So kind of personalization of incubator conditions, you know, could be a strong area for us. The other area is, you know, it might be that worst case in terms of people who are gonna access our product, is you know a healthcare professional being able to turn around to say, look, we have to be realistic here, but your chances of a successful fertility treatment are near enough zero, right? Because it just seems to me that 
you know, avoiding the, you know, first, second, third cycle and all the emotion that 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 is generated through it, that could also be of help. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. I mean, you know, that, that's a that's a worst case scenario. But even if we if we get to there, you know, in between, there'll be this this really nice kind of uh, ground where we actually physically can help either by, you know, um, make, making possible some kind of intervention before implantation to improve conditions. Um, as I said, maybe personalizing incubator functions, um, maybe choosing the right point in the cycle in which uh, to do the implantation. Mel, one comment about that. Until I started working on this, I didn't realize how variable the menstrual cycle was. That's the thing. We don't we don't sit around and go, oh, 35 days this month. <laughs> you know, oh, last month it was 28. What happened there? Exactly. Yes, notice, you know, it's only now we're seeing, you know, the uh, sort of the market change in terms of app and apps and 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 actually we're starting to move into that self-care space that we're we're actually even, you know, beginning to track what the impact of that is. And and let and that's before we actually even begin to understand how much that can potentially impact areas such as fertility. I think it's um, you know, it's it's fascinating. But this area of personalization as well is really interesting because we've seen it come into so many other areas of our lives, haven't we? You know, consumer products or um, you know, other other spaces. And you know, we've seen that through all the um the new challenger brands that we interact with, you know, the subscription services, etc. But the most important and central facet of health you know, we're not seeing that personalization come through. No, it, it does seem crazy. And I think I think it's it's purely because we just don't have the capacity to recognize it in, in the products and the drugs that we have. You know, I, I think there is a, a very common understanding out there that we are all very different. It, it's just it's just the way that medical devices and pharmaceuticals have been developed that you take the bell curve and you try and hit as, as as big a proportion of that bell curve as you can with a standard product, because you know the, the reality is whether it's a pharmaceutical, whether it's a medical device. Believe me, you'll end up talking to the manufacturing manager, and the first thing that manufacturing manager will say is, "Well, how many SKUs have you got? SKUs being the number of different kind of product variations. How many SKUs have you got? And, and the more SKUs you have, you can see more and more furrows on his forehead start to develop, and you know that." People just want one product that does lots of different things. The reality is, you know, if we have to make a, a, a shift from that and, and think more about the, the customer that we're trying to deliver this product to. We tried to do that with our with our type one insulin pumps. You know, we, we developed a product that was very much kind of consumer product driven. So, you know, it, it had colors, it was small, it was light, the interface was was very kind of easy to use. Again, really interesting. We, we tried to develop a product that if you wore it, people around you would go, wow, what's that? You know, um, and we got absolutely slammed for it. You know, people saying, oh, well, you know, it's just, it's just pretty colors and, and no foundation to it. Completely missing the point. There was a serious medical device underneath it but we'd gone that extra step and said, you know, this is not a medical device. This is an adjunct to somebody's life, somebody's life, not people's lives. And we wanted to make it interesting for that person to wear it, hence the different colours, hence the small size to be discreet. 
So I think there needs to be a lot more of that, and, and certainly within within medical devices, that a lot more of that has to happen. And I, I think it could have been, Joseph, that you were just a bit ahead of your time, in honesty, because I think we are seeing starting to see that now in areas such as diabetes care, because ultimately that, you know, whether if you refer to them as somebody or a patient or however you're choosing to refer to them, they're the same person who chooses whether they want a Samsung Galaxy or an iPhone. They're the same person, you know, who chooses to, you know, holiday increase or stay, or whatever it is, it doesn't matter. They're making, they're a consumer who are, you know, they're a, a citizen of the world who are making choices. And those choices, as you say, need to spread across every area of their of their lives. And and I there will be that expectation for that to be the case. So I think you were probably just a bit ahead of the curve on that one. Or I was talking to the wrong people. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I think, you know, I, I I, I don't think, you know, I was breaking new ground. I think it was it was, it was appreciated that, um, you know, this kind of consumer choice needed to kind of move into medical devices, especially medical devices um, where the where the individual was going to have to interact with it. So, you know, if, if you design a hip joint, nobody cares what it looks like, right? Apart from the apart from the uh, surgeon who has to put it in. Right, and the people who have to deliver it sterile. So, so, but, but where a medical device interfaces with a consumer, right? We need to get that consumer kind of buy-in into it. One of the things I would say is I don't think consumers of medical devices have been vocal enough, right? We've been too accepting of what we've been given. I agree. Um, and I, I think I think we as consumers, you know, need to flex that. Um, in terms of medical, to, to, to stop being um, grateful, stop being grateful and start being demanding. And I think once we do that, it'll it'll shift, it'll shift. You know, um, it is already shifting. Um, medical devices, when I first started, you know, were white boxes, regardless of who was using them. Um, but now even in hospitals, because it is appreciated that, it enhances the kind of working environment. Now there's some subtle colors, the interfaces are really nice, you know, touchscreen technology, all that sort of stuff came very quickly in, into that. So I think once consumers start to complain, I think we will start to see this accelerating more and more. Just, just one sort of one anecdote, which I absolutely drove my, uh, my, my view on this. Um, we were working with a company um, thinking about delivering um, a Parkinson's treatment. And uh, uh, the CEO there said, look, he said, um, go and see this this video that we posted. He said, because that just about sums up where we are. And it was an old man who, um, or a man of advanced age, because I'm, I'm becoming an old man now as well. Um, and he had uh, late stage Parkinson's where kind of conventional oral drugs were no, no longer able to, to control his condition. So um, it was always a tightrope when you get to that stage where you're either, you know, practically asleep, can't really do much, or or the tremors come back. And, you know, he couldn't do anything. He was sat in a chair in his garden during this video, not really being able to do anything. So he was given this, this pump, which was about the size of a cigarette packet, <clears throat> and it delivered the same oral drug, but straight into his, into his intestines. So you get much tighter control. And he went from being this person who sat around and doing nothing to climbing the ladder to fix his satellite dish, right? And he thought, wow, amazing. So as a medical device guy, I think, fantastic, what an outcome, brilliant. 
his comment back to the company was, can't you make it smaller? It's a bit big to lug around. And I thought, good for you, because now that you've been given your life back effectively, exactly, now it's about your life. It's not about the medical device that's given you back your life. Now it's about your life. Now you need to be living your life to its full extent. And that thing is now getting in the way. What a brilliant, what a brilliant thing to keep thinking about when you're designing, designing medical devices. Never forget that. Absolutely. No, I completely agree. That is a brilliant story. And I think, I think you're right. There is this institutionalization of our attitudes towards health. And I think, I don't know, you know, we're in the UK, we have the NHS. I don't know if it's perceived differently. You know, I know there, there's more choice to say, for example, where you're you have more established private health networks such as the US, etc. But I do remember um, my colleague Craig telling me a story of um, of a time a couple of years, well, three probably three years ago. He went to South by Southwest Festival. It had a healthcare focus. It was in um, in Texas in the US and in Austin, and they put up um, there was a slide that sort of said the ten uh, the ten biggest consumer brands. And, you know, you all the ones you'd expect, Microsoft, Apple, etc. And then they they showed a slide of the 10 biggest healthcare brands. And he commented that he didn't, you know, and this is a man who's worked extensively in healthcare. He could only recognise about half of them, probably because they're parent companies, etc. But equally, that shows, you know, shows you, demonstrates how the thing that is the most important factor in our life, which is controlling our quality of life, our well-being, our, the length of time that we have, is something we've historically almost ignored or taken for granted versus you know, yeah. some of the consumer brands. So I think there's a there's a huge lesson there. Correct, absolutely. I mean, you know, the, the, there is some very very good examples where people have done have, have kind of implemented very simple changes to a an existing kind of activity medical device, whatever, and and have come up with something that you know, you look at it and you think, well. Why didn't somebody do that before? It's so intuitive. So I know of a company that um, is designing uh, CT scanners and proton scanners where you actually you sit down. You don't lie down. And, and it, it seems just such a small difference. But in reality, you know, if you're lying down as a human being, you actually feel very vulnerable. You know, when we want to restrain somebody, we, we get them this to kneel down or lie down. It's it's not a it's not a a comfortable position to be in when you're in unfamiliar surroundings, surrounded by unfamiliar people, which which obviously a CT scanner is. And and all they've done is is reorientated the thing so that you, you sit down, which is a much more relaxed kind of um position that's consistent with how we would want to live our daily lives. And then on the on the flip side, we, we know about mammograms. I mean, the way those things are done, it's it's almost inhuman. Yeah, it's yeah. almost inhuman. You know, and why somebody has not looked at that and thought, God, there's got to be a different way of doing this. You know, but we don't. Is that because there is no way of doing it in in a different way? I can't believe that. Yeah, but it's, it's, you know, people put up with it, so there's no complaints. Yeah, no, and I think, you know, again, that's an interesting market. It's ripe for a bit of disruption. I, I know of a few businesses that are looking at that space. And um, and I also heard 
somebody told me who I who will remain anonymous um, that they were um, originally part of the G team that developed the first mammogram way back when, and it was uh, it was a t an all male team, and it was affectionately referred to as the tit cruncher, the first <laughs> the first mammogram machine. So clearly a great example there of where you've got a product which is delivering a brilliant output, but actually that user experience absolutely horrific. Yeah, it's um, suck it up. Yeah. It's yeah. doing a good job. So suck it up. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it is exactly that. You know, I mean, look, if you were if you were to go out into into the high street, right, and do that to a woman, yeah. right, you'd be in prison faster than than the legal process could process you. Right. And and yet, you know, in a clinical environment, it's perfectly acceptable. Perfectly acceptable. Um it yeah, it I mean those those kind of things I think do do really highlight what we're we're talking about, this kind of women-centric design of products um that you know happily we are seeing more and more of. Um but I you know, I I, I just said it and maybe it's it's starting to really resonate with me now. People need to complain more. People need to complain more. You know, if 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 your iPhone right isn't delivering what you expected, right, it'd be all over the news feeds and you know, it, we don't we don't complain about situations like that. You know, my wife has obviously had several of those and she hates them. Has she ever put in a complaint? Said, God, you know, this is this is barbaric. Why would you want to be doing this? And it, any it seems like any kind of female gynecological procedure again i don't know maybe maybe it's something to do with doctors that you know they like prodding us you know with with digits covered in latex because I, to be fair you know men have have similar problems with kind of prostate examinations and again i maybe it's something to do with the medical profession they just <laughs> they just love this kind of kind of rummaging around in bodies maybe it's when they were it's certainly ripe for reinvention, isn't it? Across a huge number of layers. Um, and I'm hugely excited to be working alongside you, Joseph, and Verso Biosense and everything that, um, you know, that's sort of been recognised in terms of all of these opportunities and, and these status quos that need to be challenged in this space. Because clearly, for all the reasons we've talked about and so many more, that absolutely is the case. And thank you so much for joining us today. It's been brilliant hearing your your point of view and and a bit about um, you know some examples of, of things that we need to do differently. And I'm going to start complaining more. I don't think uh, everyone around me is going to be happy about it, but but I'll say, well, Joseph told me to do it, so I'm going to do it. Mill, yeah, I, you know, go ahead. I'll, I'll complain on your behalf as well. That'll be at least two voices who are complaining. But thank you very much for giving me the opportunity. I've, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you, Jason. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed listening, please rate, review and subscribe and keep your eyes peeled for our next episode.